Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Following Jesus while ignoring our emotions is disastrous, but following the what I feel is real kind of mantra is equally problematic. So what is the role of emotions in our life of discipleship? Well, that's what we're talking about today. We're asking, are emotions a part of the discipleship process? Like always, I am Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Embodied Faith Podcast, where we're seeking to integrate neuroscience, spiritual formation, and faith. And we're brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is growing faith for everyday people. And today we're joined by Becky Castle Miller. She's a writer and a speaker uh, who focuses on emotional, mental, and spiritual health, especially in the church, which is really important. She has a master's degree in New Testament context and has written a discipleship workbook with Dr. Scott McKnight, whom we all love. And if you don't know Scott, you should. Uh, And it's called Following King Jesus. And she's working on a new book on Jesus and the emotions. Becky, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you're here. Hi, Dr. Holesclaw. It's good to see you. Oh, please. You don't have to call me Dr. It, you were my my theology professor. Like, it feels weird to not call you <laughs> Dr. Holtzclaw. All right. Well, you know, go ahead if you must. Uh, so, but we're talking about emotions. Uh, and we've talked about emotions in the past on this podcast and other places, uh, especially when it comes to uh, relational neuroscience or the full kind of interpersonal neurobiology, as sometimes we call it. Uh, emotional life is super important and super connected to embodied faith and all these types of things. But so often emotions are just kind of kicked out uh, of kind of our life of discipleship for all sorts of reasons, which we're going to get into, I'm sure. But how did you start finding our, the important link between emotions and discipleship? Why is this something that you're really passionate about? It's because it, it, impacted my life as an individual, and it also impacts the lives of the people I pastor. So I've looked at it both as uh, as an individual, as an individual disciple of Jesus, and as a pastor trying to disciple others. Um, I grew up in a Christian context that taught emotional suppression, mm. and I really learned to distrust my emotions. I thought my emotions were trying to deceive me, and I thought that trying to become more Christ-like meant trying to become unemotional. Mm. And that deeply damaged me and that it's unhealthy. Of course it was damaging. So when I was married and had my first couple of kids, I was dealing with undiagnosed postpartum depression, again, in a context that didn't talk about mental illness. So I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just thought I was weak and a failure because I Mm. wasn't happy about being a mom. I, I was uh, having trouble bonding with my kids. I was crying all the time. turns out that's very normal. It's called postpartum depression and you can get treated for it. And then you can, it it can change your life if you get treated properly. So once I started looking at um, what healthy emotions are and realized the emotional breakdowns I had had and where a lot of my struggles were coming from, both from uh, unaddressed 
uncomfortable emotions that I didn't know how to deal with and then also mental illness. And once I started seeing a psychiatric nurse and getting properly medicated and going to a Christian therapist, my life radically changed. And then I started to see people around me who were suffering in similar ways because they hadn't realized that that emotions and mental illness were important to talk about in the church. They didn't know either. So um, then as I started pastoring in the Netherlands, I did a lot of pastoral care with Christians. It was an international church, so Christians from all over the world who in various different contexts and cultures had heard variations on don't trust your emotions, mm-hmm. um, suppress your emotions, ignore your emotions, uh, be happy all the time. If you're not happy all the time, you're a failure as a Christian. You know, If you have an anxiety disorder, you're just worried and you're sinning. Um, mm. And so trying to help people overcome those damaging teachings and to see... Jesus's model of healthy emotions and following him with our emotional life. Um, I, just, I saw the importance of this. And, and I started trying to write a book about this about five years ago and realized I didn't have the research skills to do it. So I went to seminary. So now that I'm done with seminary, I'm, I'm actually writing that book and, about Jesus. And anyway. where did you go to seminary? I went to Northern Seminary <laughs> and right. studied Little. with Scott McKnight and Dr. Holesclaw. We are not officially sponsored by Northern Seminary as a podcast, but we like to bring it up as often as possible. Absolutely. Uh, well, so someone who was really helpful uh, for me in thinking through these things was Kurt Thompson. And at the mm-hmm. beginning of his book, The Anatomy of the Soul, he has this great co- quote. And he says, the disdain toward our emotions often influences our life with God. That's because emotion is the very energy around which the brain organizes itself. Without emotion, life would come to a standstill. It is the means by which, speaking of emotions, it is the means by which we experience and connect with God, with others, with ourselves in the most basic way possible. And I think I've experienced this, you have too, uh, and we've seen that these effects is when people neglect their emotional life, it really does hinder their spiritual life, their life with God, and also with their life with others. So let's do this really quick. Um, Let's ask a couple questions. Just at at the most basic level, what are emotions or where do they come from? Uh, then let's talk about the emotional life of Jesus. And then we'll kind of uh, come back around and maybe kind of deepen this understanding of emotions and then the discipleship of emotions. So what is what are emotions? Sure. Now that we've stopped neglecting these things, what right. are they? Well, first, I just want to say that I'm glad you used that quote from Kurt Thompson. He His work is is excellent. We are actually filming a Seminary Now course. I work for Seminary Now, and we are filming a course with him in January. And I'm really excited to get his work out there on a video course. Mm, it's it's excellent. So just highlight that quote, highlight his work, and recommend totally. that to people. Um, what are emotions? So there are literally hundreds of definitions of emotion, <laughs> depending on who you ask. And emotion used to be the domain of the philosophers, and then it was the domain of the psychologists. And currently, emotion is the domain of the neuroscientists. That's where the latest emotion research is being done. So the definition I've landed on to use for my work comes from neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she defines emotions as the meaning that our minds make from our circumstances and situation, our history and the sensations that are going on in our body. When all those things combine, our our mind makes meaning out of them, and that's what an emotion is. Okay. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So uh, first, it's meaning-making. So what does that Mm -hmm. mean, that Mm -hmm. emotions are Mm meaning-making? So she calls emotions concepts. So she talks about how our brains use concept systems to understand the world. I have a concept of an apple, And so when I see that round fruit that's red or green, 
I don't have to sit there and stare at it to figure it out. My brain just knows that's an apple. And so the word and the concept pop into my mind. Mm -hmm. In the same way, our emotions are concepts. So anger or sadness are a concept that we've developed over time based on our culture, our language, what our parents modeled for us, our past experiences, what's socially acceptable in our culture, and what we've seen on television and books. So if I see a crying face, my brain goes, concept, sadness, and I've got like this fully fleshed out concept of sadness that pops into my mind when I'm perceiving someone else's emotion. In the same way, when my nose starts to prickle and tears fill my eyes and I feel a, a heaviness in my chest, my brain says, oh, uh, sadness, like I'm making meaning out of what's going on and this is sadness. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's how she explains emotion. It's, it's part of our concept system. And then what was the next part after that? They're meaning making and they're pulling from what? It's pulling from all those things that I, I listed, it's our language acquisition develops our emotion concepts. You'll talk to a little kid and say, um, you know, how do you feel? And they'll probably just say bad. Like if, if there's any kind of uncomfortable emotion, they're just going to say bad because they don't have the emotional granularity to say, I am frustrated. I am irritated. I am sad. I am lonely. I am hurt. They just it just feels uncomfortable. And so they call that bad. But as they grow up, they develop more emotion concepts. And Barrett talks in her book, How Emotions Are Made, about how having emotional granularity actually leads to emotional health. The more words and concepts we have for emotion, the more discreet we can be about explaining to ourselves how we feel and the more emotionally healthy we are. So that language acquisition part is really important. Mm-hmm. And then our past experiences. When have we felt these emotions before? How did we develop these concepts? And when we express an emotion and it was punished socially, like we got negative feedback for having and expressing that emotion, we've learned what we can get away with culturally. And that really shapes our emotion concepts as well. And then Mm. there's just the physical sensations in our body. If I have butterflies in my stomach, am I going to construct an instance of nervousness Or am I going to construct an instance of excitement or am I going to construct an instance of fear or anticipation? It's the same physical sensation, but based on other factors, my mind is going to construct a different Mm -hmm. emotion. Um, If I feel a pounding heart and I'm starting to get flushed, am I going to make meaning out of that and, and think that I'm angry or am I going to construct fear there's a lot of factors that go into the emotions mm. that we construct in a given moment. And one of uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's uh, other books, she talks about how human nature is such that it requires nurture. And so you're talking quite a bit about how our emotional responses or the meaning that gets placed in and around the physical uh kind of sensations of our body, as well as kind of our experience of the world, that those things are nurtured in us. They don't just mm-hmm. come out of nowhere. And so she's trying to kind of push back against this classical view of emotions, which is something like, well, we have these hardwired uh, mm-hmm. circuits in our nervous system and something will happen and they'll fire and then I'm sad automatically, or I'm afraid mm-hmm. automatically, or I'm mm-hmm. disgusted automatically. And there's just nothing I could do about it. She wants to say, well, that's part of the story, but that's just the most earliest you know, instance of emotions, but rather it's all these other kind of interpersonal relationships, the way we've been trained, the culture we've been raised in, uh, create kind of this emotional meaning. And, uh, and so she, she's been trying to kind of push back against the classical view. And like you said, uh, kind of view emotions as these things that are constructed. So Mm -hmm. we'll get back to this idea of constructed. Um, 
But why don't we shift to the emotions of Jesus? Did, did Jesus mm-hmm. have emotions? And why so often do we read the Bible and just gloss over the emotional life of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Jesus had a lot of emotions. He expressed a lot of emotions. He constructed a lot of emotions. Like uh, what? He never had emotions. He was just like calling yeah, out the Pharisees and he was healing people. Like when was he having an emotion? I never read an emotion in my single life. I was raised fundamentalist, book. by the way. Yes. Yeah, so well, same. This mm. book, Jesus Emotions in the Gospels by Stephen Forwinda is a wonderful, really scholarly look. And he exegetes 66 of Jesus's emotional expressions in the Gospels. And he looks at where gospel writers blatantly tell us that Jesus is being emotional, is constructing an emotion. But he also uses physical body language to guess, to perceive what emotions Jesus might be experiencing. So we can see Jesus being full of joy when he sends out the 72 disciples and they come back and their mission was successful. And so Jesus is constructing this emotion of joyfulness in the Holy Spirit and joyfulness in the success of God's work, joyfulness in what he sees in his followers and how they're catching it. They're getting it. They're living out this discipleship life. So the success of God's work brings him joy. And that's a beautiful and a very explicit emotion of Jesus. We see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, um, talking Mm. about Um, How I've longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And it's this depth of silent weeping, like body heaving sobs over their unbelief. We see Jesus being angry at those who would oppose his healing in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. Like when he heals the man with the crippled hand, he's angry. Um, Jesus is surprised by the faith of the centurion. He says, he's astonished and he says, I've never seen such faith in Israel. So Jesus is actually surprised, which we could go into a whole theological uh, rabbit trail on that, like Jesus being fully human, setting aside his divinity to live the full human experience and actually being able to be surprised, like setting aside his omniscience. Um, Jesus is, uh, is, has really complicated emotions around Lazarus's death. That's one of the most complex emotion passages in the gospels because he is empathetic with, with Mary. He's empathetic to Martha. He absorbs Martha's anger. He, he drops to the ground and weeps together in empathy with Mary. And he seems to be expressing his own grief over his, his, one of his best friends, probably Lazarus dying. Um, there's just such deep love between Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Like, he, lo- he he explicitly loves them. And it's rare to say that in the Gospels, but he loved them very much. And so he's deeply grieved over this. And then he's angry. And there's possibly overtones of him foreseeing his own death. And he is probably, one of, one of the interpretations is that he's angry at death itself. He's full of rage that death exists. And he's on his way in about a week to die himself and to overcome death. And so he's seeing this foreshadowing and it's bringing up this anger in him um, that death exists, that death happens, and he's on his way to defeat it. So this, you see his emotion moving him toward a goal. Uh, and then Gethsemane is another complicated emotional passage where he is. Well, I hold think, on. Before we for, okay. get to Gethsemane, which is super important. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but the way I was raised, 
is Jesus let Lazarus die so that then he could go there and God could be more glorified by dead men being raised. And so that's why Jesus waited and all that Jesus wept stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like that was just all part of the, um, the veneer so that mm-hmm. Jesus could prove that he's God uh, and something like that. But what you're saying is this whole story is the full humanity of Jesus grappling with the implications of, of death itself and the death mm-hmm. of a friend and moving through all these different um, stages personally, but also interpersonally. You mentioned the sisters, Mary and Martha and, uh, and the crowds and, and whatnot. Uh, so this is, so you're saying there's more than God gets all the glory yeah. because J- Jesus raised someone from the dead. Well, I think that scene not only proves Jesus's divinity, but it proves his humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, he's feeling those emotions as embodied God and as embodied human. Um, we, and we haven't even gone into old Testament passages about God's emotions. Um, God is emotional. God created us in God's image and therefore we are emotional. And therefore Jesus is emotional because he, he has both embodied God and, and in humanity in God's image. So of course he's emotional. Of course we're emotional. So I think that that whole scene proves both. It proves his dual mm. nature. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I find that many churches and um, struggle with really claiming and understanding the significance of Jesus's humanity. They're very quick to, you know, argue and prove and declare the full divinity of Jesus, of course, which I agree with. But the the humanity of Jesus is often overlooked. And I think, and that's why, uh, like you said, we overlook the emotional responses of Jesus is because we're kind of overlooking his whole humanity, um, which is hugely detrimental to our life of discipleship. I think, I, so some people get, you know, to say, oh, God is emotional. You know, some people are like, that sounds, you know, like God's like thrown around by emotions or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if we truly believe God is personal in some sort of rich sense, then the emotional life is part of that, which we have to take account of. So if we are to, uh, unless you really want to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, which we can, we can talk about. Well, I think one thing worth examining there is just that it's it's possible Jesus was actually afraid. And I find that people are very uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus being afraid. Perfect love casts out fear, etc. Um, but his deep distress is is striking there. Mm-hmm. I think he is very humanly afraid of what's coming. Yet we also see some very complicated emotions because we know that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So there's some kind of joy in that as well. And the emotion of joy seems to have given him the power, not negating the power of the Holy Spirit, but like in the, like the emotional fortitude to go through the suffering because he knew it was on the other side. And so that kind of joy in suffering is a really powerful emotion concept we can learn from the life of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that comes... That, that helps us realize um, how our thoughts and our kind of projections of the future fit in with to our emotional life in the present. And so uh, in the near future, Jesus is projecting a, a terrible death and that's causing an emotional, and by emotional, we also mean a full physical, you know, mm-hmm. he's cried tears and whatnot. Yeah. So it's causing this response, but then projecting further out eschatologically or just the resurrection, however you think, you know, there was the joy set before him, which was union again with the father and the spirit, and then also bringing all creation back into union um, through that process. And so that joy of the distant future um, was 
kind of, we could say Jesus, his emotions were approaching that. Uh, whereas his uh, projection of the future of the cross, his emotions were avoiding that. And I think mm-hmm. that that's where uh, emotions are really important. Like when you get down to the bottom of it, is there kind of these full embodied signals of like, this is something I should continue approaching or this this is something I need to avoid or, you know, withdraw from. Uh, so there's, and what you said is it, it kind of gave him the energy. And so like mm-hmm. that joy set before him gave him the energy to push through all the avoidance feelings that he has. And I think that's, you know, there's all sorts of amazing theology and things we could get yeah. into there. So, so let's do that. So if we're talking about discipleship, uh, you know, Romans 12, two says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind as a good fundamentalist and as a good uh, enlightenment, modern Westerner. I always thought that literally meant good doctrine, scripture memorization, and things of that nature in, in the cognitive processing part of my mind. But as we learn more about neuroscience and as we read the Bible better, we see, well, actually, it's not just your your thoughts. Uh, it's kind of your whole, that, that mind that needs to be transformed is really your whole embodied life. Mm-hmm. And so how is it, this is a question now for you, how do we then bring um, our emotions into conformity with Christ? Or how is it that mm-hmm. he can then shape or form our emotions? What is it, What might that mm-hmm. look like? I love that verse. And I think that that verse is a perfect explanation of constructed emotion theory in a spirit-led life. It's be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, we know that emotions have a cognitive basis. And so that renewing of our mind is not a separation of logic and emotion. Like logic and emotion are not two different things. They're all part of the same process. There's there's no difference between rationality and emotionality. They're all part of our, our brain's process and thinking leads to emotion and motion impacts thinking. It's, it's, there's not like separate parts of our brain. It's all together. So this renewing and transforming of our minds includes the renewing and transforming of our emotions. Mm. And though Barrett is not a Christian or at least not openly. So she doesn't talk about it in her neuroscience work. She gives a lot of hope around emotional transformation that I'm trying to bring into conversation in Christian spaces because her experiments have shown that if we change our emotion concepts over time, we actually change the emotions we construct in a moment of reactivity. So the emotion is the meaning that we're making from the stimulus and the sensations in our body. But over time, we can gain new emotion concepts, and then suddenly our brains will start constructing those. So the theory that I'm working on in discipleship is that if we look more and more at Jesus's emotions and we learn some of the same emotion concepts at work in his life, we'll begin to exhibit more Christ-like emotions um, as we go through our lives, just like we submit every other part of our lives to discipleship and to following Jesus's example, like prayer. Uh, We learn from his prayer example. We learn from his teachings on money to bring our money into submission to to Christ. We learn about using our time and our words. Well, why don't we learn about using our emotions to become more like Jesus? So I think that, that following this neuroscientific theory and following what we see in the gospel about God basically commanding emotions, like love your enemy, that's a super complicated emotion concept, but it is one we can learn and it is one that that the Holy Spirit can transform in us, we can come to a place where we can actually construct an emotion of enemy love Mm. as we go through our lives. 
Uh, just before you you said that, I was writing down pray for enemies as an example. So so why don't we just stick with that? Because um, so prayer is like a spiritual discipline, mm-hmm. and then prayer for enemies, you know, is something that Jesus commands us. And I always wonder, you know, I, I've brought this up in past uh, episodes. You know, I've always wondered, well, why does Jesus do that? Well, because it like a I believe in prayer, and I believe like it affects you know God's blessing and a supernatural reality. Okay, so so there's that. But B, I think that there's like neurological wisdom in this, right? So if you've been traumatized, so speaking of Jesus, you know, probably thinking of like Roman soldiers. Um, If you've been kind of just from childhood terrorized in general by um, Roman soldiers killing people or just stealing things and all this, uh, or you have specifically been on the receiving end of abusive treatment, then uh, when you see a Roman soldier physiologically all sorts of things begin exploding in you mm-hmm. as a trauma survivor yes. that you have no control over. Yes. Uh, in the moments. Yeah. Right. And so, so, so loving that enemy feels impossible. Yes. Um, it, just even saying it out loud or thinking of it is just like, that's ridiculous. But praying for your enemy is to not see them in person, uh, but it's to bring that concept, like you said, to mind of that, you know, we'll just say a Roman soldier, uh, but it could be, you know, like domestic abuse or other types of things, or could it be a car accident? Or well, mm-hmm. I guess that's not the same, but, uh, well, but unless it's like road rage, like an intentional. Right. Okay. Right. Know. So, but when you bring that person, that concept to mind, your body will start going through similar activities. It'll start mm-hmm. freaking out because of that. But, uh, as you, uh, experience that in the presence of God, you know, praying for them in a sense of like blessing them or however you might, pray for them. Uh, you learn how to deal with that reaction and you start putting guardrails around it. You start at least getting used to it. You start acknowledging, oh, that happens every time I think if I, I pray for so-and-so. Um, you know, it could be that church member that you just like, you can't stand and they're always doing the worst thing. Uh, and so I've been wondering, like, that's like Jesus, the, the praying for your enemies is doing neurological work and mm-hmm. people who are afraid of things like dog bites, um, who are traumatized by dogs, uh, they go through this work with a psychologist where they start envisioning things right. and then they exposure imagine. therapy. Yeah, for exposure example. therapy, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so is praying for enemies just exposure therapy so that we could someday um, spontaneously love that enemy rather than being revolted, afraid, or overwhelmed by them? That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting concept. I hadn't put it in those terms, but I think there's a lot of validity to that. And now I'm, I want to explore that some more. That's really interesting. Um, I think that is possible. Um, and I also, I always like to give the caveat, like if you are, if you're dealing with PTSD, I'm never pastorally going to put any pressure on you to like immediately forgive, immediately love, expose yourself to more harm from that person. Like I would say, go through long-term trauma therapy to heal those wounded and damaged parts of yourself um, so that your emotions are not as wildly reactive. Once that the trauma has healed, once our brains have healed from trauma, then it does make space for loving enemies. But there is a lot of work involved. It's not an instantaneous thing. But I think we can work toward attaining that enemy love that Jesus called us toward while healing and protecting ourselves. So that would be kind of a long a long-term kind of... It's a long-term thing. I think this changing our emotion concepts is a long-term <clears throat> solution. You you physiologically cannot change your emotion in the instant you're having. You, your brain does not work right. that way. 
Right. Um, and then you just shame yourself and beat yourself up for something you, you cannot control. But what you can choose is what actions you take after you experience and construct that emotion. And that's like that space between the emotion and what you choose to say or do is space for the Holy Spirit to work, mm. right? for self-control to come in. And what you can choose to do is to commit over time to growing more Christ-like by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, mm. by exposing ourselves to the teachings of Jesus and immersing ourselves in the teaching of Jesus, becoming more Christ-like in our character. And over time, knowing that the long, slow process of discipleship means that we will become more and more like him. Um, but giving ourselves grace that it's not going to happen in an instant. Right. Uh, and especially with something like that, PTSD, um, trauma abuse survivors, that's going to, that's going to take a long time. But I think too often what I've experienced is the way I was raised, which is, you know, just forget about it. Just forget about the emotions. Right. Mm -hmm. So then they're not a part of the discipleship journey at all. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like a lot of people, um, either individually, they kind of go to the other extreme or we just have this other extreme, which is what I feel is real and my emotions aren't going to change and, um, and they shouldn't change. And, you know, uh, this is how God made me or something like that. Mm. Uh, and so there's no call to like develop or change or transform our emotions on that option either. And so there's no change or transformation. There's just, I'm ignoring it or this is just how I am. This is how I respond. But with this idea that emotions are concepts, they're meaning making, uh, they were given to us, they were constructed for us interpersonally, you know, primarily in our cultural and families of origin, mm -hmm. um, but they can change. And so um, I did an interview with this guy, um, Drew Dyke. Uh, he wrote a book called Your Future Self Will Thank You. And, and it was this whole idea that, yes, in the moment, we don't usually have control over our spontaneous reactions, uh, but we are responsible for figuring out ways and training our future selves mm. and how we may be able to, to respond more Christ-like in the future. Mm -hmm. So how am I training myself in the present? Is mm -hmm. it prayer practices? Is it, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about contemplative prayer, mm -hmm. how that helps you deal and not just mindfulness also, they're not the same thing, but they're related. Uh, and how uh, contemplative prayer kind of helps you understand the own motions of your body and your emotions. Uh, but also it helps create what is called like a secure attachment with God mm -hmm. and a secure attachment also transforms our emotions because we believe that there's someone there who is available, willing to help us out um, and all these types of things. And that actually helps our emotions be transformed. So there's things yeah. we can do in the present to help transform our emotions in the future. Yes. But then we need grace for ourselves when we blow it in the present and then just have compassion and say, well, my mm -hmm. past self did all these sorts of things and my past self received these things from other people, but now I'm responsible now for my future self. You know? Yeah. Is that making any sense or am I yeah, going Yeah, absolutely. And just a note on you're talking about attachment to God. Crispin Mayfield does really wonderful work. He's got a new book coming out on um, Attached I've the already pre-ordered it. I'm just Okay. Waiting, awesome. Just have you had Crispin on? I have show? not, but I'm, you need, I he intend needs to. Do, to. He's, he's on wonderful. my list. Yeah. Crispin Mayfield, fantastic uh, on attachment with God. Um, Yes, I think that that discipling our emotions is a long-term process. And one of the important pieces of that is validating our emotions as they come because your emotions are real. And if you I feel like like the constructive theory of emotion gives us a lot of hope because it helps us understand how emotions are formed and how we can change them. 
if you feel deeply hurt and rejected because a friend didn't respond to your really important message and you are experiencing those sensations in your body and you're making meaning of rejection and hurt, that emotion is as real to you whether it's based on factual information or not. Mm -hmm. So our emotions are not wrong, but sometimes the cognition behind our emotion is wrong. That's not an emotion problem. That's that's a, a facts problem, right? Like the hurt you feel is very real. If your friend truly was ignoring you or rejecting you, of course it would be valid to feel hurt. But sometimes we have to interrogate the facts behind it. You can reach out to the friend again and be like, hey, you didn't respond to my message. That really hurt. Well, oh, my email glitched. Like I never actually got it. I wasn't ignoring you. So sometimes when we change the facts or the information or the cognition behind the emotion, the emotion instantly changes. When you mm -hmm. find out they weren't ignoring you, it was just a fluke. Oh, like suddenly the hurt is gone. Everything's fine. You don't feel that emotion anymore. But the emotion is the same to your mind and your body, whether it's based on facts or not. So what you have to do is then look at the facts that are leading to, to the emotion. And sometimes they are off. Uh, right. But sometimes you'll find that they are right and the situation is what you perceive and it is completely valid to be as angry, sad, hurt as you are because something truly terrible happened. Um, so emotional health is not the absence of emotion or being unemotional. Like right. I said earlier, being Christlike is not being unemotional. Emotional health is having emotions that are proportionate to the stimulus. Mm. Um, there's got to be a way to say that. That's like not quite so scientific <laughs> and sterile, but you, you know what I mean? That fit. Their emotional response to this word, uh, you know, fit. Yeah. Paul says, or shoot, is it Paul or Jesus? You know, in your anger, do not sin, right? So anger is real and even mm -hmm. possibly necessary, but do not mm -hmm. sin means it needs mm -hmm. to fit. It mm -hmm. needs to be directed at the right thing um, and at the kind of the right level. Um, yes. Sure. And well, some good. of that is yeah, some of that is individual, right? Like some people will just feel and express their emotions bigger than other people. Some people just have more flat affect, and some people just have like a wide variance in their affect. Um, so some of that is culturally driven, like emotions that are acceptable in your culture. But sometimes you make a conscious choice to buck that. Like your mm -hmm. culture says it's not appropriate to be angry about injustice, but you know that God is angry about injustice, so you're going to get loud and angry about injustice, and that's a valid and holy emotion, even though it breaks cultural rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, the emotional kind of variance or baseline is also genetic or biological. Uh, my one of my sons, my two sons, feel pain differently, um, literally, uh, because their skin is different. Uh, and wow. I, I figured this out because we were doing we had bows and arrows, and the fletching of one of the arrows literally cut my son, one of my sons. And I was like, that's weird. Like that doesn't happen to me and that doesn't happen to your brother. And so his, his skin was literally easier to harm, uh, which has all sorts of physiological and neurological results. Mm -hmm. And he was always the one to avoid conflict and to tone down, you know, pain or emotional pain. Right. And so his, his physical pain was totally connected to his avoidance of emotional pain. Uh, whereas my other son loves conflict and it's mm -hmm. his physical pain tolerance is way higher. Like he does not register pain in the same way. And so those things are definitely connected, but they're also, wow. like you said, uh, emotional and social and all these types mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, but could we just finish with like one or two practices maybe that you've stumbled upon or, you know, maybe they're just very common that can help mm -hmm. move us forward 
uh, so that our future self could be more conformed in our emotions to Jesus? Is it prayer mm-hmm. practices or just mm-hmm. awareness practices or things like that that you recommend to people? Uh, number one is growing your emotional granularity. Go learn some new words about emotions. It actually makes a difference. Barrett has a chapter about this in her book, How Emotions Are Made. If you learn new emotion words, you give yourself more opportunities to be more fine-tuned with the emotions you construct. Go learn emotion words in another language and in another culture that enriches your emotional life. So literally look through a dictionary or you know find lists of emotions and learn them. That actually uh, makes a difference. Find a feelings wheel. They're easy find to a Google. feelings wheel. A feelings yes. wheel will do that. It starts off in the middle. It has about five of the most well-known, but then it kind of spreads out and gives you, it's super good. We actually do that with our youth group. Uh, we make them check in emotionally like every week. And they're like, this is stupid. I was like, Fantastic. no, this is super good for you. That's a really <laughs> okay, important so, discipleship practice. So, so g- grow your emotional mm-hmm. granularity. And part of that is reading the gospels. Just read the Gospels regularly. Immerse yourself in the life and teachings and emotions of Jesus. Pay attention to his emotions. And the more you get those concepts in your mind, the more they'll come out in the moment. And it will actually transform your emotion concepts. Um, And then realize that there are some times that your emotion problem is not an emotion problem. What you think of, "Ah, I just really struggle emotionally. Maybe you don't. Maybe your emotions are fine and you're in an abusive relationship. And the problem is not your emotions. Everything you're feeling is valid and right. And God gave you those emotions to protect you. Maybe what you need to change is getting out of that relationship. Mm -hmm. That's not an emotion problem. Maybe you're being spiritually abused in a church. And what you need to do is go to a healthy church. That's not an emotion problem. Or maybe you have undiagnosed or untreated complex post-traumatic stress disorder go to a trauma therapist. The problem is not your emotions. The problem is your trauma responses. Mm -hmm. And when your brain is healed, your emotional regulation will be much easier to achieve. Um, Internal family systems therapy and EMDR are both really helpful methodologies Mm -hmm. for that. Like our emotions are the language that are the parts of ourselves used to talk to our core self. Uh, I think you had an IFS therapist on recently. I saw an interview with someone talking about parts and I find parts work to be really helpful with our emotions. You know, if you're feeling angry, kind of look inside, like what part of me is angry and what is that part angry about? And listen to that. What is that emotion? And what is that part of me mm-hmm. saying? And then bring truth and comfort and compassion to those hurting parts of ourselves. And that that has helped me immensely in emotional regulation. And neither of us are against medication. I just want to make no. that abundantly clear. But this idea of emotions, it does help us have more options than pharmaceutical ones. And so, like you said, if you're depressed, it might not be, uh, you know, a neurological issue or it could be a relationship issue. Like you have no energy to invest in your life because you've done that and and it has borne no positive results. So now you no longer invest energy. And that's kind of what depression can be. Certainly there are neurological reasons for depression, but maybe it's just... I put energy into the world and nothing ever good comes from it. So I've stopped. Uh, That's a relationship issue. That's not necessarily a neurological issue. Uh, And so uh, this idea of where our emotions come from, that it it allows for a a very broad context for understanding possible ways forward. And for a lot of people, you do need medication and therapy and to change it. Like you need all these things. And spiritual deliverances and, you know, spiritual breakthroughs. I'm I'm for all of it. All of it. All of it. And I've experienced all of them at different points. There have been times I've experienced miraculous instantaneous healings. Um, I was having severe 
obsessive compulsive symptoms as a teenager. And I went to a, a youth camp, like a Christian youth camp, and through some prayer experiences, like I was miraculously delivered without having to take medication. OCD is almost never healed without medication. I highly recommend medication for it. But in that instant, I I did have a miraculous healing. And yet at other times, I did take long-term antidepressants for postpartum depression. Um, in, in recent, like I've been, I've been seeing a trauma therapist weekly for two years because of long-term trauma that I had never mm. dealt with. And so like I've used all the different tools at different times and I've been healed by God both through uh, miraculous deliverance, through medication and through qualified therapy. So I'm I'm grateful for all and I recommend all. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's why we call this uh, podcast uh, Embodied Faith. I used to call it Being With. I was kind of, you know, I like that too, but it, changing it to embodied faith primarily for this reason is God is working holistically through all these different kinds of means to heal us, to transform us and to conform our emotions to God's very emotions, which we see at work in Christ. So Becky, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be like, Oh, that was so helpful. So thank I'm you. I'm so glad. Thank you. It's really fun to talk about. All right. And for all of you listening or watching, uh, you could find this podcast uh, wherever you find podcasts, iTunes, Spotify. Um, it's also on YouTube under my YouTube channel, Jeffrey Holsclaw. And it's on, you can find me and Becky. Your, what are your social uh, handles and whatnot? Yes. So people on Instagram, yeah, Instagram and Twitter, it's both at B Castle Miller. At B Castle, Castle Miller. Okay. Yep. Excellent. Well, thank you again. And we will talk to all of you soon. Thank you.